Well, today I want to do something a little different than we normally do. Um, First of all, let me say that today is Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday. It would be today in the historical account of uh, the crucifixion and the Easter story that Jesus would have made his triumphal entry on a donkey into Jerusalem and he would have been celebrated and worshipped by men and women with palm branches as they sang Hosanna uh, to King Jesus. And then he would have, beginning in this week, Uh, had one of the most incredibly terrible weeks that you could ever imagine as he sacrificed and gave his life for you and I. And so on this Passion Sunday, um, I wanted us as a church uh, to take some time and talk about some things that we do in the church that really celebrate who God is and what he's doing in us and through us. And uh, so today, we, uh, I'm excited that we're going to be able to share in Holy Communion together as well as uh, share in some baptisms today. We've got six baptisms that we're going to celebrate. And so I'm really excited about that. But before we do, I wanted us to kind of back up in the church world for a moment and ask ourselves uh, a simple question, a few simple questions that help us see church through the eyes of people who may not love the church, who may not have history with the church, who may not attend church, and uh, who may have been hurt by the church, if we're being honest. See, sometimes church can be confused with what I like to call churchy. Maybe you've heard the term churchy before, and churchy is used in a lot of different ways, and on some levels, the church should be churchy. Don't misunderstand me, but on some levels, the church is churchy to a fault, when it comes to reaching people for Jesus. And uh, if you've been around Synergy for very long at all, you know that we're a church that wants to reach people who don't know Jesus, who may be far from God, so that we can share with them the hope that's found in the gospel message. Now, I grew up in church. So anything that you hear me say today, don't take from someone who's bitter at the church. Uh, Don't take wrongly from someone who's been hurt by the church. Take from someone who deeply loves the church and who has a lifetime of history in the church and who wouldn't trade any experiences I've ever had in the church for where I am today. I absolutely love the church. I love that there are different types of church. I love that there are different approaches to church. I love that the heart of every church should be exactly the same. I love that people are different in different types of approaches to church will reach different types of people and we can never be the church that will reach everyone and so we need churches we need new churches to come into this very town we need traditional churches that are already established in this town to do incredibly well and to thrive and to um, and to celebrate the hope that's found in Jesus. So I love the church. I'm so engrossed in the church. Everything that I know for most of my entire life is centered around the church. When I graduated college, I took my first full-time job in the church, and I've worked full-time in the church my whole adult career. So the church is essentially my life. I love the church. I have nothing against the church, but it wasn't until really thinking through planting this church, really in the the months and years that led to the establishment of Synergy Church, that for the first time in my life, I truly tried to see church through the eyes of people who don't love church. Tried to see what was happening in church through the eyes of people who may not love church the way I love church. Now, 
Churches have traditions, and those traditions may vary from church to church. In fact, they do vary quite differently, and approaches vary quite differently. But one thing that I began to see when I became honest with myself as I was trying to see church, and specifically the church that God had called me to help start here in Barrow County, what church really looks like through the eyes of people who don't love church, and to try to create a church that someone who may not have history in the church and may not understand everything about the church would be attracted to on a level that would allow them to hear the message of the hope of the gospel. And it was in that process that I began to see some things inside the church world for what they were. And if we're being honest, some of the things that I saw inside the church world were what I'm calling churchy. Okay, and so today, what I want us to do for the next few moments, I've kind of titled this message, Celebrating Church, Calling Out Churchy. Celebrating Church, Calling Out Churchy. Here's what I found. In Scripture, in God's Word, there are found some traditions that the church should embrace. There are some traditions that should be involved in every church that are defined in Scripture uh, that aren't necessarily optional for church to take or leave. But then there's a lot of traditions inside the church that aren't really rooted in Scripture. They're not really defined in Scripture, and they're not really established in Scripture as a mandate or as a covering for every church as a whole. And I found a lot of those traditions to be interesting when I started looking at them through the eyes of someone who may not have history with the church or who may not specifically love church. And as you just saw in that video, there's a lot of language that we use inside the church that can be confusing for someone who doesn't have history with the church. And I found that a lot of times as I was hearing sermons or as I was speaking to people inside the church or I was having conversations that I was saying things that someone on the outside could particularly maybe get offended by or may completely not understand and maybe turned off from church altogether because of some of the language we use. Have you ever just thought about some of the language that we use in the, in the church world and we talk about uh, the sacrifice of the lamb, because we know history of scripture and we know that God's word talks about Jesus became a spotless lamb who was sacrificed for us. But someone maybe without that knowledge, hearing someone from stage say, let's just raise our hand as we celebrate the sacrificial lamb. Someone in the, without history in the church world might say, wait, are we like killing animals this morning? What's, I, I don't, I don't quite get that. They're celebrating a sacrificed lamb. And I began to think maybe that's something that we take for granted as just something that people inside the church know that may be excluding some people outside of the church. And I began to find different ways that we speak to one another. We, we're the only place for the most part that I know of in the world where people call each other nicknames that aren't found outside the church. And so um, I grew up in a pretty traditional church and, and we would say, hey, brother so-and-so and hey, sister so-and-so. And I got to thinking, what if someone who attended that church just thought everyone was related? Like how weird would that be to attend a church where everyone was the same family and you felt like, 
I'm no one's sister. I'm no one's brother. I don't understand what they're saying. See, Scripture talks about how we are united and we're part of the same family and we're brothers and sisters in Christ that's rooted in Scripture, but there's no mandate for us to have to use that language in the church. And because of traditions inside the church, we've embraced a language that sometimes people on the outside may be confused by. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There are people in this church that I say, hey, brother, too. And they say, hey, brother Bronson, to me. And I'm not offended by that in the least. But specifically as someone who has a calling on my life to share God's word, I began to think through how I spoke specifically from this stage through the lenses of someone who may see what I'm saying as churchy rather than church. And I began to question references that I make in Scripture. And I talk about Joseph from time to time. And someone who may have limited history or limited knowledge of the Scripture may be thinking of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, when I'm referring to an Old Testament character of a man who was given a coat of many colors by a father who loved him. And I got to thinking, maybe I should be a little more specific and have a little more clarity when I use references in Scripture instead of just assuming that everyone knows as much much about the history of Scripture as I do. Now, I don't pretend to know as much as many of you. I'm not the smartest person in the room at all, but I began to say, is it possible that we could use a language that might not be confusing to people? But it's not just that. I began thinking through everything that we do as a church. Why do we sing songs in church? Where do you go outside of concerts where you get together and you sing. Now at Christmas time, if you have traditions, that might be part of your family, but there's not many other places that you go and just sing songs together. When it comes to communion, which we're going to celebrate today, a tradition of the church, someone who doesn't have history with the church and doesn't understand the church may be confused by Communion, what is that? I don't understand that. And so often we just serve communion with no explanation and just assume that people know what communion is. And then there's baptism, which there are different ways that people baptize in different churches. I specifically find uh, a way that we should baptize in Scripture. So some of that's confusing even to me. But when someone is baptized, sometimes there's not really an explanation as to why someone's baptized or what it means. And so for someone who may be attending our church week in and week out, who may not have history with the church or know much about the church, it's important for us not to just assume that they understand what we do. Why do we give money every week in church? At the end of a worship experience, we pass here a giving bucket. Some people pass a giving plate. Some people pass a giving basket. Some people pass a giving bag that has handles on each side. And so the handles flip-flop as they go down. And there's different traditions and ways. But I've never really stopped and thought, I wonder why people, what they think when we take money up at church. You know, is this an admission fee? Am I supposed to put something in because I attended church today and that's what's expected of me? You know, is this an option for me to tip the people who are on stage? I thought the song was great today, so I'll give them a little bit. Maybe that'll go far to help them, you know, enjoy their week. Is this something that I'm supposed to do? And so I began to think maybe it's important for us just to at least to say something simple before we take money each week so that people understand why we do what we do. 
And so I kind of developed this filter, and it's a simple scripture, and it's a scripture that's not intended, it's not written. Um, I'm telling you in a way that I'm using this scripture as a filter through a lens that wasn't specifically intended for me in this context. And so you can kind of take this or leave this as you will. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 is a verse of scripture that I found helpful as I was trying to establish why we do some things that we do in the church world. Why is it important for us to explain some things? And here's what Colossians 3.23 says. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. Some versions say, do it as unto the Lord, as working for the Lord, not for men. Whatever you do, whatever you do. And so I began to think, whatever we do in church, whatever we do in a worship experience, whatever we plan on a given Sunday, whatever we do, we're to work at it as we're working for the Lord. The progression of what we do, the reception of what we do, the heart behind what we do should be to give glory to God and not glory to men. Now, let me explain how this became somewhat important to me. As someone who grew up in the church and has lots of history with the church, there were a lot of things that I just assumed were in Scripture that we had always done because that's the way Jesus designed his church and that's the way that he intended for us to conduct worship experiences week in and week out. And I began to see that some of the things that I just assumed were defined in Scripture weren't specifically defined in Scripture. In fact, there's a lot of freedom when it comes to worshiping Jesus in a corporate context of the church, the local church, as a part of the corporate larger church, ecclesia, the original word for church, which just means uh, coming together, a gathering of like-minded believers, that we are to come together specifically for the purposes of giving glory to God. But I began to see that there weren't a lot of definitions on exactly what that looked like. Did, did you know that Scripture doesn't define what you have to wear when you attend a church service or a worship experience? You know, growing up, I always heard that when you went to church, you wore your Sunday's best, that you presented your best to the Lord. And so we would dress nicely, and I still love to get dressed up from time to time, and I love to give my best to the Lord and to honor Him. But I began to see that the Bible doesn't say, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the end of the ages. And by the way, make sure you wear the best clothes you have while you do it. I never found that. In fact, I found some verses that people may use to give context to a decision to wear their very best. And by the way, if you want to wear suits here, you are absolutely more than welcome to wear suits here. I will be the first to comment on how great you look. I love when people wear their best for the Lord. I am not criticizing that in the least, but I'm simply making an observation that the heart behind that isn't mandated, it isn't instructed from Scripture. And I began to think, well... How would it appear to someone who may not have nice clothes or who may not have a seat, a suit, if I invited them to come to my church and everyone was wearing suits and was dressed really nicely, how would they feel? 
Specifically, if they were told by someone when they came to that church that, hey, we expect people to wear their Sunday best when they come to this church. Do you know that happens? I know that you can't imagine that happened, but that actually has happened before in churches. And probably more than we would like to admit. That there is an expectation on people to assume a tradition that's not mandated by Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with the tradition, but it's not mandated by Scripture. And so I began to think, what if I didn't wear a suit and tie when I actually stood on stage and preached to people? Would that relate better to people who may not have nicer clothing or who may not be comfortable dressing up to come to a worship experience? Maybe that would allow them to see that that's not something that is church, but that's something that's churchy. Now, rightfully so, not dressing nice is churchy. So someone who goes to a traditional church where they dress up and wear a suit and tie would say that pastor of Synergy Church who doesn't wear a suit and tie is doing that out of tradition with a purpose. And I would agree. Churchy, it's not relevant. But the point I'm trying to make here is that there are things that we do inside the church world, the way we wear, the way, what we wear, the way we speak to another, one another, the places we meet. You know, there are some people in this town that would never consider coming to church inside of a gym. It wouldn't be my first choice, if I'm being honest with you. But it is what it is. I like to say that. But do you know that the Bible doesn't define what the place where you worship has to look like? That we can be out on a ball field this morning and we could have church just like we are in a gym, just like we could if we were in an established facility that's been around for 100 years that has stained glass windows and pews that it doesn't really matter what the place you're meeting in looks like. You know, I've been parts of conversations with people before that have said, this is a church. We don't have a cross on this building. We should be ashamed of ourselves. This is a sanctuary. It's a place of worship, and we don't have a Christian flag paying honor to King Jesus. This is a place of worship and it doesn't have an altar where people can kneel in response to Jesus. And I have been in conversations with people who couldn't get past certain physical things about a building where they met and worshiped because they saw that as necessary for church. But Scripture doesn't really outline what the place where you meet has to look like. And so that's something that I would say is churchy and not specific to church. And I got to thinking, you know, we just assume a lot of things about the church world and how people understand things. And so what I wanted to do for us this morning is I wanted to focus on two things that I believe are church. That they are fundamental to the church the church that loves Jesus, whom we celebrate and whom this week we are focusing our hearts, affection, and our minds' attention on for the great sacrifice that he bore for us when he gave his life for our sins. Jesus Christ introduced us to a couple of traditions of the church, traditions that have held up through the ages of the church, 
that were birthed with the church and still exist with the church today. And no matter how we do these things, these things should be a part of the church because they're not just man's traditions that aren't defined in Scripture. They're things that are clearly laid out in Scripture that we should be part of. And I've talked about them some in the past, but today specifically we're going to celebrate some of these things. And so I wanted you just to hear my heart for a couple of these things today. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion together. Holy Communion together. The Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, that we're going today to partake in what would be known as the elements of the blood of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ. And I know that that can be confusing when you think about drinking Jesus' blood and eating Jesus' body. I know that's confusing, and so we're going to talk about that uh, in just a moment before we partake in communion together. But Holy Communion isn't simply a, a traditional act by which we are doing something because we've always done it. Doing something because we've always done it. I am thinking through a series for next year uh, that I'm likely going to call Trophy God. Trophy God. Has anyone ever heard of a man who has a trophy wife? A man who has a trophy wife. Um, has a wife that he may or may not have married or has a trophy girlfriend that he may or may not be dating just so that he looks better for having her by his side. Have you ever met someone like that? Maybe you've called someone for what they were, or you know someone that's like that, and you don't want to say anything, but there are people who are more proud of what their spouse or their significant other does for them than they are in what they have to offer that person. That would be someone that I would say has a trophy spouse, whether it's a husband or a wife. They're, they're proud of them. They like to display them. They like for people to know that they own that or they... Uh, have rights to that. They like for people to see that that is something that makes them look good. And I think, I think that when it comes to the church world, we sometimes have a trophy God. That sometimes we can follow through with traditions or we can follow through with events in our life simply to say that we have a connection with a God to make us look better. And we don't always have to show that trophy, but when it's convenient, we love to say, here's what I've done or here's what I've experienced. And one of those things I feel can be Holy Communion. That sometimes it's possible for us to simply go through the motions of receiving Holy Communion out of a tradition rather than a true heart condition that we're simply going through the motions of something that we've been taught over the years that we don't fully understand so that we can say we participated in something that's important to the church. And so even this, which I categorize as church, as foundational to the church, Holy Communion, can become churchy. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks to a church in the city of Corinth where he wrote them a letter and explained that they had been abusing the Lord's Supper, that they were partaking in the Lord's Supper in the wrong ways. In fact, um, let's just be honest, this particular church had become so accustomed with partaking in the Lord's Supper and it had lost its meaning and significance so much that um, they were actually just enjoying the food and the wine that was being served. And so they were overeating and over drinking because it was something that they always did rather than understanding the importance of it. So let me just give you the heart behind 
communion. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in Luke chapter 22, both referencing the same event. Jesus is having a last Passover meal with his disciples. Now, Jesus had 12 disciples that followed him closely, and Passover was a Jewish meal that would have been celebrated every year. And so he gathered his disciples in a room to celebrate a Passover meal, which was a Jewish tradition. It was a religious event. And at this religious, traditional meal that he's having with his disciples, he begins to say things that they've never heard before. And he began to pass a cup of wine around the room. And he told his disciples, those who loved him, those who were close to him, that they should drink this drink because it represented his blood, which would be shed for them. Now you want to talk about confusing. And then he passed some bread, and he said that this bread should represent his body, which would be broken for them. So Jesus is at a meal called Passover with his closest followers, and he's introducing a new twist to a traditional supper. And it came to be known as the Last Supper because that was the last time that he would share that meal with his disciples before he sacrificed his life for their sake. So, Jesus passes wine and said, this represents my blood. He passes bread and said, this represents my body. And then days later, they would fully understand what had happened in that room that night. Because the Jesus they followed and they loved so dearly would have been beaten and bruised and would have spilled his blood as he was tortured for their sake. And his blood would have been spilled and in that moment they would have recognized that they remember him saying that his blood would be spilled for them and that they had drank to what he is now doing and then and then his body would have been broken and beaten so badly that he was irrecognizable and his body would have been given for them as a sacrifice and as he was pulled off a cross and laid into a tomb they would have recognized his body was broken and he did that for them which would have been more clear next Sunday as we'll celebrate Easter and understanding the resurrection that came with that and he would have been explaining to them something that was to come, that when it came, they would look back on and understand that Jesus did for them what he described through a traditional meal. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is giving us instructions on receiving that in remembrance of what Jesus did. So now on the backside of Jesus' sacrifice for us, as we receive Holy Communion in church, it's not simply a religious activity. It's not simply a tradition of men. It's not something that we do just to make ourselves feel good. It's something that we do to center our heart and center our minds on the sacrifice of Jesus, which is so relevant for us this week as we look towards Passion Week or the week leading up to Jesus giving his life for us. And so in just a moment, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion together. And then after Holy Communion, we're going to celebrate water baptism.
together. You know, I, I grew up in a church where baptism was a part of it, and so I just assumed that everyone baptized the way our church did, but I've, I've come to find that there are some churches who baptize somewhat differently than, than, than we did in the church I grew up in, and, and we specifically didn't have a, a pool that we rolled into a room that we dunked people in. It looked different, and it was much nicer, and it was built into a wall, and I remember being an eight-year-old kid that slipped down the stairs and fell all the way under the water and stood up completely wet before I was baptized. And so I like to think that God loves me extra special because I was baptized twice in the same day. But it doesn't matter where you're baptized, if it's in a lake, if it's in a pool, if it's in a river, if it's in a portable tub, if it's in a tub that's built into a room, what's important is the significance of the act of baptism. So scripture describes baptism with a, an original word, baptizo, which means to fully immerse. Jesus himself was baptized by John Baptist in the Jordan River, and he was fully immersed in the water. He was submerged. He went all the way underwater and came all the way out of water. It's something that the Bible teaches us, if we've talked in the past, is to be done after conversion. It's an outward expression of something that Jesus has done on the inside, and it's not something that does anything for us. It's something that identifies what Jesus has done for us. Okay? Now, this is important because some people may believe that when you get baptized, that's when you get saved. That actually going underwater and coming back up out of water, if it's performed by a pastor or a priest or a minister, then that means you get to go to heaven. And the fact is that Jesus does something for you that allows you to go to heaven that baptism can't do for you. But baptism is an opportunity for you to identify with what Jesus has already done in your life. And so today we're going to celebrate six baptisms. And as these six people tell their stories through video in just a moment, you're going to hear that Jesus has done something in their life. And today they want to publicly profess before you that Jesus has done something in their life. And this is a tradition that's not established by man, that's got nothing to do with you know, going through a religious activity. It's got something to do with Jesus established this as church and not churchy. But here's the thing. Some people think if I partake in Holy Communion, then that makes me something. And if I get baptized, then that makes me something. But these are actually traditions established and rooted in Scripture, confirmed by Jesus, passed down through the generations of the church that don't do something for us, but because of what's been done in us and for us, they cause us to remember and reflect upon and deflect glory to Jesus. And so I would say that when it comes to church and churchy, that there are some people who use traditional, established, godly, church-given ordinances in a churchy way because they do them in a way that doesn't necessarily give glory to Jesus. So whatever you do, you're supposed to work as for the Lord and not for men. But perhaps these things are done because we want people to think things about us or because we think they'll do things for us in the eyes of other people.
And so we don't particularly celebrate communion extremely often. And we don't have a permanent baptistry built into this facility by which we can baptize on a traditional timetable, the specific Sunday every month. So we have to be flexible with our methods, but the heart behind what we do, what we do, is simply to say, we want to make sure that people understand the heart behind these ordinances. Some people call them sacraments. I I lean towards ordinance because sacraments can have a leaning towards signs or rites, which could mean if you do these things, then you get something. But these are really ordinances because we observe these things in response to what God's done for us. We don't do these things because of what they do for us. So here's what the next few minutes are going to look like. I'm actually going to ask the band to come at this time, and, and they're going to get in place, and they're going to begin to play, and in just a moment, we're going to observe Holy Communion together, and then I'm going to come back and say a few words, and we're going to see some uh, videos of some people who are being baptized today, and then uh, I'm going to come back, and we're going to give you a chance to give financially another tradition that may seem churchy in the eyes of some people. But what I want us to do for the next few moments is to begin to see That no matter what traditions or history we have with the church or how we've done what we've done, how we do what we do isn't as important as why we do what we do. And I want us to be a church that specifically focuses on the why behind the what's. That we don't assume that people know specific things about the church or about why we do things and we do them assuming that they know things, but that we make sure that we explain why we do things so that people can actually connect to the true meaning behind the things that we're actually doing. So if you're here this morning, communion, which we're about to partake in, is simply an opportunity for people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, who have accepted the free gift of Jesus, who call themselves Christians, who call themselves followers of Jesus, who have received the sacrifice of Jesus for them as a gift for life and have been made new in him, it would be a time as instructed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to remember what Jesus has done for them. Now, if you grew up in a church like me that passed a plate that had little crackers in it and had little cups with juice in it, um, we don't have that today. And let's not get caught up in the way that we partake in Holy Communion. The important thing is that today we are remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and what that means for us. And we're remembering that Jesus' sacrifice for us gave us hope and gave us a future and made a way for us to receive life in him. I want to read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse number 23. Again, this is written by a man named Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Here's his words to us. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, in just a few moments, I'm going to give you instructions to go and receive Holy Communion. And there's going to be 
some bread there, and I'm going to ask you to break a piece of bread off, which is going to represent the, bo- the broken body of Christ, which was broken for you. And I want you to remember his sacrifice for you. And then he goes on and says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And I know a lot of people have been sick, and so we're not all going to share the same cup, if that's okay with you. And so I'm going to ask you to take the bread that you've just broken, and you're simply going to dip it in the juice. And then you're going to eat that. And you're going to remember that Jesus' body was broken for you, and Jesus' blood was shed for you. Now, this isn't going to do anything for you if you don't know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, we're instructed to observe this tradition as a way to simply remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And he ends by saying, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then he actually gives us instructions that we're not to partake of this Lord's Supper, this holy ordinance in an unworthy manner, that we shouldn't partake of this without examining ourselves first. And so I'm going to ask the band if they'll just start playing softly. And would you just for the next few moments, would you just close your eyes and just kind of center your heart around the sacrifice of Jesus?